Now, let's get to those things that I can uh, speak on with great joy, uh, and that would be opening up God's Word uh, to John chapter 3. Uh, and uh, whenever I uh, have the opportunity to go uh, to a wedding or sign something uh, for newlyweds, uh, what I love to do, uh, oftentimes they'll have something that says, you know, do you have any advice for the new couple? Uh, and my wife and I, without fail, always say the same thing. And we always say the, the advice that we give is ask clarifying questions. Uh, It's always that uh, because there's so many times where you assume the worst about what the other person is saying. Right. Uh, And uh, we just have that natural tendency to do that. For instance, uh, a wife might ask her husband this clarifying question. So when you said dinner tasted burnt, were you saying that I was a horrible cook? Uh, uh, Or she could say, when you said I've had such a long day at work, were you implying that I haven't had a long day? here with the kids at home? Uh, those types of clarifying questions where oftentimes we, we assume the worst. We assume what is not being said. Uh, and clarification is always helpful, whether it's uh, communication in marriage or when something is being taught. Uh, and as we come to this portion of John chapter 3, we, we come to a, a paragraph that is given for our clarification. Uh, it is a commentary on what has preceded it. It explains what has already been said. So if you're there with your Bible, please look with me at John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. We're going to read through uh, the end of verse 21. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in god and again, this, this paragraph comes at the end of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And because uh, in the, the Greek manuscripts uh, there are no quotation marks, uh, we don't quite know exactly where that conversation ends. Uh, many English translations uh, end that conversation at the end of verse 21, what we just finished reading. But there are many uh, scholars and, and pastors and commentators who believe that that conversation ends somewhere before verse 21. And there's discussion on where it ends, because again, we don't know exactly where. Uh, but I would say that in my, in my own study, I think that the conversation ends in verse 15. 
Uh, and I think verses 16 through 21 are now transitioning into, away from the words of Christ into the words of the Apostle John as he explains what Jesus has just said to Nicodemus. And, and I would give several reasons for why I've come to that conclusion. And the first would be that in verses 14 and 15, what I would say would be the, the end of Jesus' words to Nicodemus, he speaks of the cross as something that is going to take place in the future. He's to say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Uh, and in the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And then in verse 16, the cross is spoken of as already having taken place in the past. It says God gave, past tense. He gave his son out of love. Uh, that would be the first reason. The second reason is that Jesus never uses uh, the word that in, our, in the ESV is translated uh, as only, or the idea of unique, or the older translations say that the only begotten son uh, Jesus never uses that word to describe himself, but it is a word that, that John the Bab- or John the Apostle used to describe Jesus in the introduction to this book in verse 14 of chapter 1 and then again in verse 18 of chapter 1. That, that is a, a word that John the Apostle uses to describe Jesus. Now, additionally, in this section, what you have is a, is a return to the theme of light and darkness uh, that was, again, introduced in John chapter 1, which the prologue portion, uh, where John is introducing to us all of the themes that he's going to talk about in his gospel. Uh, this light and darkness uh, is what he returns to here in this passage, as we will see. Uh, additionally, uh, in this chapter, in verses 31 to 36, you have another portion that kind of bl- goes uh, what, seamlessly from the words of John the Baptist in verse 30 to uh, the commentary by John the Apostle in verse 31 to 36. Uh, and overall, this, uh, this style of, that, of writing, what we see, it, rem- it reminds us so much of the Apostle John. If you look at First uh, John and, and the way that John just thinks and explains things, he, he always clarifies what he means with a positive and a negative statement. He'll say, uh, this is what I mean, here's what I don't mean. This is true, this is not true. Uh, and, but, so even though I'm saying, and I think John three sixteen to 21 are the words of the Apostle John rather than Jesus, it doesn't change their authority. Now, it doesn't change the inspiration behind them because all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable with teaching for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It is equally authoritative and equally true whether it was spoken by Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus or written by the Apostle John uh, in his gospel and to us today. Now, and so, so regardless of who said it, it still comments on what preceded and it is still authoritative. So let me begin with that. In no way am I trying to, to diminish the, the, the authority of these verses. But uh, further, this paragraph, you could, you could break down this way. Last week uh, on Resurrection Sunday, we had the privilege of looking at John 3.16. Uh, by far and away, the most famous of all verses in Scripture. And what you could say about that verse is that verse summarizes the Bible. It tells us what the mission of God is. Now, what, why he sent his son into the world. What did he seek to accomplish? And he gave his son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the purpose of his giving. And then verses 17 and 18, which we come to today, serve to, to comment on that. They clarify what John means when he says that statement. When he says God gave his son, what does he mean? When he says whoever believes, what does he mean by that? 
verses 17 and 18 are the clarification of God's mission, if verse 16 is the statement of God's mission. And then verses 19 through 21 are the declaration of God's judgment, which we'll look at next week. Uh, of Hey, what are the, the implications of God's mission? If God sent his son into the world, what are the results of that? What does uh, that have? What net, net effect is that going to have upon the world as a whole? But as we look just at verses 17 and 18 this morning, we see the apostle John is clarifying the meaning and significance of verse 16. Everybody loves verse 16. Fewer people are familiar with verses 17 and 18, even though they clarify and explain what John meant in that verse. Uh, And within this, we're going to see that the purpose and the results of God's mission, as it was famously stated in verse 16. Why did God send his son? And then what are the results of God sending his son? Uh, why did he give his son? And, and then why will only some be saved and why will others perish? And those are the two points of clarification that are going to help us to understand the mission of God in these verses. That's why these verses are important. It clarifies and explains the most famous verse in all of Scripture. And uh, I would say that from this we'll gather two points of clarification. And the first is found in verse 17. This is clarifying the purpose of God's mission to the world. And that purpose of that mission is salvation. And then in verse 18, clarifying the results of God's mission to the world. The result, even though it wasn't, the purpose was not condemnation, the result is condemnation. The result is Judgment, And I'll explain that as we march along. But uh, let's look first at uh, that first point of clarification in verse 17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this verse echoes, again, what precedes. And the idea of God sending his Son is the same as the idea of God giving his Son in verse 16. And the, the word for send here carries the idea of being sent with a delegated authority. It's to dispatch someone for the achievement of an objective. Uh, and it's where we get our word apostle. Uh, apostle literally means somebody who is sent with a purpose, with a mission. Uh, and that's where when I speak of John 3.16 and when I speak of the mission of God, what I'm t- speaking about is God sending forth his son into the world. Uh, when we see that word of sending, it always carries the idea of mission behind it. Uh, when we send somebody with, a, with a pr- the purpose of going and proclaiming the gospel uh, to another country to, to build his, the Lord's church and to, to reach the lost, what do we call that individual? We call them a, a missionary. And that's the idea here. Jesus is God's missionary into our world. That's the concept of what we are seeing here. Uh, and the mission of God is synonymous with the mission of Jesus. When, when if I say them, I mean those things in equal terms and identical terms. Uh, there's not two competing missions of God the Father and God the Son. They are one mission to save humanity. Uh, and the, the God, the Father, came up with the mission and God the Son is carrying out the mission perfectly according to plan. And so John clarifies, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world... Uh, the NASB there says he did not send his son to judge the world. And I think con- condemn is a little bit better translation there uh, in the idea of coming with that purpose. Judge has a, uh, a variety of meanings. Uh, and what he's saying is God did not send Jesus to bring divine condemnation upon the world. 
Now, when Jesus returns his second coming, there will be judgment that accompanies it. But in the first coming of Christ, God didn't send Jesus to condemn. He sent him to save. That was the purpose of his sending. Uh, and uh, there was no intention of bringing divine condemnation upon humanity at that point in time. And then following that, that negative statement, John follows it with his positive statement. It says, God didn't send Jesus to do this. God sent his son to do this. But in order that the world might be saved through him. And when this verse speaks of being saved, is, again, it echoes the idea at the end of John 3.16. That whoever believes will have eternal life. To have eternal life is to be saved. To be saved is to be uh, made safe. To be made secure in the middle of turmoil. In the middle of condemnation surrounding us. God sent His Son to save. To render safe and sound from condemnation. And we have to keep in mind that when Jesus came into this world, he wasn't coming into a world that was neutral. He was coming into a world that was already under the condemnation of God because we've already rebelled against God. We've rebelled against our Creator, the one who's given us life and breath and everything. We have wandered away from him to go our own way, to follow our own path. So Jesus is coming to an already condemned world, a world that is hostile to God, So Jesus doesn't need to bring additional condemnation. The world is already condemned. And that's where Jesus comes. He was sent in order to save, to rescue out of that condemnation. And those are the the mission parameters that Jesus was sent with. You're not sent to do this. You are sent to do this. And there was a a rescue mission that that failed miserably a little over 39 years ago uh, this month. Uh, those of you who uh, are old enough would remember that back in 1980, April of 1980, there were 52 Americans who were being held hostage in Tehran, now the capital city of Iran. And they had been held there for nearly six months since in November of 1979. Uh, there was a, a storming of the U.S. Embassy because uh, Iran was outraged that the U.S. had allowed the formerly Shah of Iran, who'd been ousted and kicked out of the country, uh, they allowed him to come, we allowed him to come into the United States to receive medical treatment. And that's what prompted uh, some militant students in Tehran to storm the U.S. Embassy and take all of the Americans hostage. And for six months, President Jimmy Carter had attempted to make diplomatic appeals to the new regime led by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, and for six months, nothing happened. There was no progress that was made. And so finally, President Carter decides that a rescue mission needs to be attempted, uh, that something needs to be done. And so uh, on April 24th, 1980, President Carter ordered a covert military operation led by Delta Force to try and rescue the hostages. And, and part of the plan was for eight helicopters uh, to land uh, in a, a staging area there in Iran uh, to get ready to, to go into where the hostages were kept. And, but of those eight helicopters, only five of those helicopters arrived uh, in adequate condition to uh, fulfill the mission, uh, to go on the mission. So one of them faced a sandstorm, another one had hydraulic failure, another one, they realized there was a crack in the, the rotor blades. So of the eight helicopters, five are there ready to go. Uh, and ultimately, facing that uh, predicament, President Carter, in a decision that was highly scrutinized later, decided to call off the rescue mission. 
says, okay, let's not follow through with this. But as the, the helicopters were departing, one of the helicopters crashed into a transport plane, killing eight servicemen and injuring another five. And the next day, President Carter came uh, on national television and uh, apologized for the incident, saying, taking full responsibility for the tragedy. So there was this rescue mission that was a, 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 in an attempt to save these hostages, those who were held captive. And it failed miserably and actually cost the lives of those who were trying to do the saving. And the hostages were held for another 270 days before being released. Uh, and and I, I, I mention all of that by way of contrast. That, that God has a plan of salvation that he has put into motion that he planned from before the foundation of the world and he's put that plan into motion and nothing can thwart that plan there was nothing that could derail it uh they don't god didn't get halfway down the road and then say oh you know what this isn't going to work i'm going to have to i'm going to have to do a recall we're going to have to withdraw this isn't going to work as i planned no god's plan could not be thwarted His rescue plan did not fail in its aim to rescue humanity. His plan achieved the purpose for which it was intended. The Son completed the mission that was given to Him to go to the cross, to pay the penalty for sin, to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, to rescue a people for the glory of God. That is what we see here. Yet the plan of God has been accomplished. And the plan of God was not condemnation, not judgment, but it was salvation that the world might be saved through god the son and there are some opponents of christianity or some of you who might be thinking so here it clearly says that jesus was not sent to condemn he was not sent to judge but then if you if you turn over a couple pages in your bible to john chapter 9 verse 39 so john chapter 3 says jesus was not sent to to condemn he was not sent to judge is literally what it says in the greek but then in verse 39 of john chapter 9 jesus said for judgment i came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind so opponents of christianity have said well here here you have a discrepancy you have a contradiction how can it be that jesus was not sent to judge and at the same time he came to judge How do those things mesh together? How do we harmonize these verses? They seem to, on the surface, contradict one another. Well, and I I would say this, that that the the first verse that we've looked at in John chapter 3 is speaking of divine condemnation. But in John chapter 9, verse 39, he's speaking of just a decision that is made by a judge. And Jesus' entrance into the world naturally forces all of humanity to make a decision when jesus comes to save when he when he claims to be god and he comes and says i am sent from god to save we are immediately faced with a choice am i going to receive the testimony of christ am i going to accept what he has said about himself or am i not and accompanying that decision comes either judgment or salvation The judgment spoken of here in in John chapter 9 verse 39 is just a natural and unavoidable result of Jesus' presence and ministry in the world. And that's defined for us in this very verse. If we look and think through the context, 
of John chapter 9, verse 39. It says, On the heels of Jesus healing a man born blind. Uh, and the Pharisees going and interrogating this man and uh, interrogating his parents and saying, Hey, were you blind? Are you sure? And you go to his parents. Was, was he blind? How has he been healed? What's this? Uh, and the whole point of the, the, the story is that this blind man who was healed by Jesus is able to see who Jesus really is. But the Pharisees, who have been able to see all along, they don't know who Jesus is. They can't see him clearly. And the idea here, the judgment spoken of here, is that when Jesus comes, people will be revealed for who and what they really are. It says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those who understand that they are spiritually blind, and they acknowledge that. Christ will give them sight. But those who continue to say, oh, I have spiritual sight, I see things clearly, they reveal themselves to be blind, and that is the judgment. They are judged for what they are, and in response to Christ. That is the emphasis of John chapter 9, 39. So there's no contradiction. They're speaking of parallel ideas, but the judgment spoken of is just what is demonstrated as Christ comes and presents himself to the nation of Israel and as he presents himself to the world, which he is in the middle of doing there in John chapter 3. Now, opponents of Christianity have also brought this charge against Scripture. They say that the God of the Old Testament is a a judging, he's a harsh God. He's vengeful and wrathful. And they try and juxtapose, juxtapose uh, this, this l- harsh God of the Old Testament, God the Father, with what they would say, that the God of the New Testament, Jesus, who's loving and kind and compassionate. But I say that this is, a, this is a false dichotomy, and this is disproved even here in these verses, in this paragraph. Because what we see... In John three sixteen, and here again in verse 17, is that God the Father is the one, He's the architect of our salvation. He's the one who's planned this all along. So He's not a wrathful, vengeful God. He's a loving, kind, compassionate God. That while humanity has been in rebellion against Him, He is working and planning to save them, to redeem us from our rebellion, from our condemnation that we face. And he is going to accomplish salvation. He's going to demonstrate his love by sending his son. And you couple that with what we saw earlier in John chapter 3 with the work of the Spirit. What we see here is that our salvation is not merely just the work of God the Son. It's not merely Jesus being a rogue agent among the Godhead and saying, Well, I'm going to save these people if you're not God. Our salvation involves each member of the Trinity. Jesus said earlier in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. You must be born of water and the Spirit. Saying that the Spirit must give you life. You can't earn your way to heaven through your own efforts. Your good works are not going to get you there. God, the Spirit must give you life. Must give you a new heart. And all of that is accomplished by Jesus going to the cross, which was spoken of in verses 14 and 15 in John chapter 3. Nicodemus says, how is this possible that I have to be born again? How is this possible that the Spirit will give me life? And Jesus says, well, it's possible because the Son of Man will be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. 
And then here in verses 16 and 17, we see that all of this was according to the plan of God. All of this was motivated by the love of God for a sinful world. That's what we need to see and understand. Salvation is the plan of God the Father, accomplished by God the Son, and then applied to us in the power of God the Spirit. God's plan and character didn't change between the Old and New Testament. This has always been God's plan to save and rescue a people for himself. And here's why this is important. This should influence the way that we think and the way that we worship. Now, we can praise God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit for their role in our salvation and understanding the value that has been attributed to us in God's planning and working and doing all of these things in order to save us. That much work, that much planning and, and uh, forethought, all that communicates love and a desire to know us and to be known by us. So our, our understanding of our salvation should impact and influence the way that we worship God and then additionally the way that we love others. Again, if we are called to love as God has loved, this is, we need to understand the love of God as it has been demonstrated to us. Then, we, then we'll see how far short our love falls. And that will be humbling and, and motivating for us to love even as Christ loved us. And this is what we see in verse 17. Now, John has clarified the mission of God through his son, Jesus Christ, not to condemn, but to to save, to rescue us, to snatch us out of the condemnation that we face. But here's something that we have to, to see in this text and in this passage. And it's something that we have to wrestle with in our in our hearts. As I mentioned, everybody loves John three sixteen. Not too many people love John three seventeen and 18. Right, John 3.16 gives you kind of those warm fuzzies, right? For God so loved me. And that, and that is true. And, and we should embrace that and take comfort and find peace and hope in that. But we also have to embrace and understand verses 17 and verses 18. Because what these verses work to do is to show us that salvation and condemnation go hand in hand. That they are two sides to the same coin. They are uh, inseparable spiritual realities. You can't have salvation without condemnation. So what is it you need to be saved from? Well, I don't know. Well, then it's not really salvation unless we understand what we are saved from, unless we understand our condemnation. Salvation and condemnation always go hand in hand. And as John seeks to explain this further and clarify this further, what he's going to do in verse 18 is going to, to clarify the result. He says, so Jesus didn't come in order to condemn. He came in order to save. But again, as I mentioned, the very presence of Jesus brings condemnation because our condemnation is wrapped up in how we respond to him. What do I say about Jesus is going to have an impact upon my internal destiny? And as John the Apostle continues to speak about these things, he's going to, to look a little bit closer. He speaks of the world in verses 16 and 17. Now he's going to kind of narrow things down a little bit. He's going to move from the, the really big picture down to the individual person. He's going to divide humanity into two categories. Those who believe and those who do not believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's how he's going to clarify the results of God's mission to the world. The second point of clarification. 
And that second point of clarification, the results of God's mission is condemnation. That is the natural result. Look with me at verse 18. As for whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And everybody falls into one of those two categories. As I mentioned, there's no third category here. John neatly divides all of humanity, those who will place their faith in the Son and those who do not place their faith in the Son. And he, he first states a very comforting truth for those who believe. Says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Praise the Lord. Praise God that we are not condemned, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Romans 8, chapter 1 echoes that same truth where Paul writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you turn the page in your Bible over to John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. That is what takes place when we, when we put our faith and trust solely in Jesus. That we pass from death to life. Now, John echoes this same truth in uh, the letter of 1 John, verses, or chapter 3, verse 14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And whoever does not love abides in death. So those who have placed their faith in Christ have passed out of death and into life. And then John contrasts that idea, the results of those who believe with the results of what happens those who do not believe. To those who do not believe, whoever does not believe is condemned already. Uh, and what's amazing that is that little word already. Why does, why does John say that those who do not believe are already condemned? Well, in the same way that Jesus can speak of our salvation. It says, hey, if you place your faith and trust in Christ, you have passed out of death and into life already. Now, that, that's an, that's a, a present reality and then it will come to fruition and fulfillment in the future. Well, in that same way... Those who do not believe in Christ are presently condemned and then will be finally and ultimately condemned in the future. And, and John speaks of these things as, as if they have already happened to show that the certainty and the definiteness of what he speaks about. That we will not be judged if we believe and we are already under condemnation if we have not believed. And then all, John also explains... The reason behind that judgment and condemnation. Why is this judgment and condemnation already present? Why is it looming over those who do not believe? Well, what we see here is it is a self-condemnation. It's because they have rejected Christ. It's, it's because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And the judgment of unbelievers on the last day is really just a... Uh, a finalization of their own self-condemnation. That's what we see here in this verse and then elsewhere in John. Look at me at John chapter 12. 
verses 47 through 50. Actually, let's backtrack a little bit. Let's look at verse 44, beginning there. You see this pattern that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Sounds a lot like our own passage. And the one who rejects me does not receive my words, and does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What we see here is Jesus crying out again, whoever looks to Jesus in faith will be saved. But then he makes this this evaluation and says, look, but if you don't believe me, I'm, I'm not here to judge you. Who is it that's going to judge? Those who don't believe? The, the words of Christ. They, they will judge. And really, when somebody doesn't believe in Christ, it's not that they are at peace with God, but no, I'm not going to believe Jesus, but I can be at peace with God the Father. No, Jesus ties the two together. Because when you reject me, you don't receive my words. You have a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For It's not his word that he's spoken. Jesus says he has spoken the words of the Father. So when you disagree about Jesus, you're really disagreeing with what God has said about Jesus. This same idea is, is written in John or 1 John 5, verse 10. John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And whoever does not believe, God has made him, or whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. The idea that when, when Jesus comes and presents himself, when he comes and says, here I am, I'm the son of God, the savior of the world. Again, we all have a decision to make. We all have to respond to his claims. And if we say, no, Jesus, I don't, I don't believe you. Because God has said, this is my son, this is the one I'm sending. When we disagree with God about that, we make him a liar. Now, those are, those are striking terms to think about. We don't like to, to think in terms of that. Of I didn't mean to call God a liar. I'm just disagreeing with him. Well, you're saying that he's wrong and that you are right. And that is the judgment that we see. That is the condemnation that we all abide under. Because at one point or another, we have all rebelled against God and rejected Christ. It's always a point in time where we have not believed in the Son. And people reveal their true nature through their response to Jesus. Luke says that, that Jesus came so that hearts might be revealed. And as I said last week, that if Jesus is the greatest gift that humanity could ever receive, he's also the greatest gift that humanity could ever reject. 
Think about that. Jesus is the greatest gift that humanity could reject. And the rejection of the greatest gift that we could ever receive really says more about us than it does about God. The, uh, you may have heard of uh, something called, uh, or an art genre known as an Impressionism. It was an art movement that, that Claude Monet was a part of. And uh, the term Impressionism was actually coined by uh, an art critic, Louis Leroy, uh, who was trying to criticize one of Monet's paintings uh, at an exhibition. Uh, he was criticizing Monet's sunrise painting. Uh, and uh, he called it an impression because he thought that the, the work looked incomplete. He says it showed poor handling of technique. And he wrote, Impression, I was certain of it. Uh, I was just telling myself that since I was impressed, there had to be some impression in it. And what freedom, what ease of workmanship. Uh, A preliminary drawing for a wallpaper pattern is more finished than this seascape, he wrote in a sarcastic review in a a French magazine. So you have this, this arrogant, snooty art critic commenting on Monet's work and saying... It's really not finished. It just gives me the impression of a painting, but it's really not a full painting. Additionally, Vincent van Gogh's uh, art, uh, he only sold one single painting in his lifetime. And it was sold for about 400 francs, which is equal to about $1,000 today. And most critics dismissed him outright. He said his works were amateurish, that they were strange and tense and, and feverish. And yet today... Every single one of Vincent van Gogh's paintings, who's one of the most celebrated artists in the world right now, every single one of his paintings is worth more than $60 million. So when these art critics in the late 1800s were condemning and belittling these masterpieces, when they're condemning and belittling these artists, but over time... Both the masterpieces and the artists are recognized for who and what they are. Who is it is that is condemned in that situation? Is it the critic who initially does the condemnation? Or is it the art and the masterpiece that eventually brings condemnation upon the critic? As time passes and, and reveals all things and it shows, way, well, those critics really didn't know what they were talking about. Well, in that same way, when somebody rejects Jesus... They don't condemn Jesus. They bring condemnation upon themselves. They show their own arrogance and their own blindness. They show that they can't really evaluate what is before them. Their eyes and mind cannot discern the good, the beautiful, and the true. And so eventually they are the ones who condemn themselves. Just like those art critics who condemn the masterpieces. Yet we don't like to dwell upon this reality. We don't like to think about what is being said in this verse. Uh, And I think most of us would dearly value and treasure uh, things that we've talked about in the past, that we are justified, we are made righteous before God by faith, faith alone. Justification by faith is a doctrine that came out of the Reformation, that was rediscovered by by the Reformers. Something that we hold dearly, but naturally... When we hold to justification by faith, we also have to hold to something else that I would say is condemnation by unbelief. 
Now, if we believe that the only way that we are saved is by faith, we also have to hold that if you don't believe, if you reject the only method of salvation, that then whoever does that is under condemnation. It's not something that we like to, to think about or dwell upon, but it is a reality. And the same way that we are justified by faith, we are condemned by unbelief. But why is all this significant? What impact should this have on our, on our day-to-day lives? Why does this matter in your moment-by-moment living? Well, we see here that, as I said before, our triune God is the one who works to save us. While we were spiritually dead, God breathed life into us. He gave us the new birth. We are born again because of what He has done in our lives, not because we have brought about our own spiritual transformation. He gave us new life, and then in an immediate and instantaneous response, we look to Christ in saving faith. And here's the key, is that salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. And that changes and transforms the way that we worship, because then we're not patting ourselves on the back. We're not boasting about what we have done, but we boast about what Christ has accomplished, what He has done in us and for us. I love the words uh, that close out 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. As we think about our salvation, there's no room for boasting, there's no room to proclaim our goodness. There is only room for boasting and praising. God. Yet at the same time, what we see in these verses, salvation is a, is a work and an act of God, but then our condemnation, that's something that we do ourselves. God doesn't bring that upon us. We bring it upon ourselves naturally. That is what we see here in John over and over again. If you look at the end of John chapter 3, verse 36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, those who do not believe, we, they, they have this situation before them that they are already under condemnation, that they need to escape from. They need to get out from underneath that condemnation that abides upon them because they have rebelled against God and then rejected His Son. That's a self-condemnation. Again, God doesn't actively condemn. We condemn ourselves by our rejection of the greatest gift that God has given to the world. There might be some here today who are wrestling with with Christianity, wrestling with all that I've said here, wrestling with John 3.16, wrestling with this idea that whoever believes is saved and whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned. You might be agonizing over that or wrestling with, is this true? Should I entrust 
my entire self, my entire being into the hands of Christ? Is this really all true? And I would say, yes, absolutely. Again, of the, the, the critic's evaluation of those masterpieces is not what is true. What is true is found in the object itself. What is true is found in Jesus. And if you're here today wrestling with these truths, I, I would plead for you, beg for you to hear what is spoken. I would urge you to look to Christ, to run to him. Understanding that, that Christ is the Savior. He is the one who can save you, even though you cannot save yourself. In John Bunyan's famous book, The, the Pilgrim's Progress, the main character of the story, a man named Christian, uh, he, he reads the Bible and comes to the realization that he is facing condemnation for his sins. He, he realizes that judgment is already upon him and he is in great distress. So at the beginning of the book, uh, Christian reads these things and he goes home and he's in great distress. He speaks to his wife and his, his children. But he cannot find peace. And still in great distress over a situation, the next day he encounters a man named Evangelist. And he asks Christian why he's crying and he answers with these words. Says, Sir, I realize by reading the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not wanting to do the first, nor am I prepared to do the second. And so Evangelist urges him, flee from the wrath to come. And he says, to walk through the narrow gate with a light shining behind it. And he points him to a field, a plain across from the town. And at the, at the far end of that field is the narrow gate. He says, Go to that gate and walk through it. And Bunyan writes, so, so Christian begins to run. And he had not run far from his own door before his wife and children, having seen it, began to cry after him to return. But the man puts his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life, life, eternal life. So not turning to look behind him, he fled toward the middle of the field. His neighbors also came out to him to see him run. And as he ran, some mocked him, others threatened him, and some cried out for him to return. But ultimately, Christian comes to the narrow gate. He walks through it. He comes later to the cross. And he looks to the cross, even as we are called to look to Christ in faith, in the same way that, that Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness. And all the Israelites who looked upon the serpent were saved from the serpents. We are called to look to Jesus in faith. And that's what Christian does in the Pilgrim's Progress. And in that moment, all of his sin, all of his burden, all of his shame, all of his condemnation is taken off of him. And he's told that he has gained entrance into the celestial city. And the book continues on Christian's journey towards that city. And if you are here this morning and you haven't placed your faith and trust in Christ, I would urge you to do as Christian did. You don't have to run down the street with your fingers in your ears. Uh, you don't have to do that portion. But what you are called to do is to walk through the narrow gate. To look to Christ. To come to the foot of the cross. To acknowledge your sinfulness. To acknowledge the holiness of God. And your impending judgment. And then to look to Christ as your only hope 
for salvation, your only hope for redemption. And if you're here this morning and you've already done that, if you're here this morning and you have already experienced the the burden of your sin lifted off of your shoulders, then praise the Lord. That is what we gather to do, to worship Him for what He has done. But here also is what I would call you to do, is to be like evangelists in that story. That as others come to you, we are called to point them to the narrow gate. We are called to point them to the cross. We are called to give them hope and to clarify what they are called to do as they understand the judgment that looms over them. We are called to be evangelists. We are called to point others to Jesus. And may we do that faithfully. May we wrestle with the gospel. May we love God's word for all that it teaches us. May we embrace and rejoice in the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his son. But then may we understand that our response to the son determines not only our destiny, but the destiny of all humanity. Will you believe in Jesus? That is the most important question that every single person in the world will face. How we answer that, again, either leads to salvation or our own condemnation that we bring upon ourselves because we reject the greatest gift ever given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you for the truthfulness of your word, for its goodness, for its worth, for its beauty. We thank you not only for your written word, but we thank you for the word made flesh, your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent into this world, not for the purpose of bringing condemnation, Lord, we were already condemned. We had already condemned ourselves, but Lord, out of love, you gave your son, you sent him to save. And we are amazed by your love for us. Even while we were sinners in rebellion against you, you were planning, you were working behind the scenes to save us through your Son. And God's salvation belongs to you. Because you have saved us, we rejoice in knowing that our sins have been forgiven. We take comfort in knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And we have hope that we have eternal life waiting for us with you in heaven. And that is a present reality with us. We have passed from death to life because of what your son has done. That is a a present reality, but is also something that waits to be fully realized in the future. And we praise you and thank you for that. You have also shown us in your word that all humanity stands condemned before you. That only those who believe in your Son will escape that condemnation. And Lord, may you burden our hearts to lovingly and graciously share your love with others. May we graciously proclaim what you have done in sending your Son. May your mission ever be on our lips. Because even as you sent your Son into the world, you have sent us into the world now as well. And so we ask and pray for opportunities to speak of what you have done through your Son. And give us boldness and wisdom to seize those opportunities. Season our speech with salt 
Let us know how we ought to answer each and every person. And give us grace. And use us, each of us, as instruments in your hands. As servants at your command to glorify the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And it is in his name that we bring these petitions and these prayers and these praises before you, God. Amen.